So what are the implications for us today as those who are descendants of the Reformation? Spiritually, that's the stream from which we come. What does the chasm or the divide between the Roman Catholic arm of the professing church and, frankly, the Orthodox as well uh, look like for Protestants today? Uh, I'm going to read quite a bit of text this morning. This, frankly, just requires a little bit more from you. I hope that the message ends up being a good one and maybe something you can file for another day. So if it doesn't apply immediately. By way of introduction, uh, there's a text in Genesis 14. You can turn there if you like. It's a short story, and it comes from the life of Abram. And five kings from basically the Babylonian area had been getting extortion or silence money from four kings in the land of promise, and those four kings quit paying. So the five kings come in, and basically they go through the land, they destroy everybody that gets in their way, and they take away people and loot with them. And the text says this, Genesis 14, 11, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. One who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And the story goes on to say that Abram and his household and these three brothers, the Amorites, his allies, they chase down the five kings. They sort of do a surprise attack. They win that battle and they bring back the booty and the people. King of Sodom tells Abram, hey, give me the people. You take the goods for yourself. Abram ends up saying, I won't take anything but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. You remember, Abraham is the guy that God is in covenant with. Abram is carrying the promise of the Messiah. And Abram's in the land of promise. He's in covenant relationship with God. And as far as the text says, or by any means that we have a discern of discovering this, these three Amorite brothers are not in a faith relationship with Yahweh, with God, as Abram is. But they are his allies. They live in the land of promise. They don't share his faith, but they do share some of his common concerns. They were good neighbors to each other. And so when Abram needs them, they come and they help him. We assume that when they needed help, Abram would be available for them as well. Text doesn't say anything as to whether there was a money motive in this. They may have assumed if we go and if we win, that we'll get a portion of the goods that are brought back, as they did. That was sort of an expectation. But they were allies. They didn't share the same faith, but they shared a common good, at least at certain points in time, in which they came together and worked with and served with each other. So for us as as descendants of the Reformation stream of things, Uh, What does it look like for us uh, related to relationships uh, individually and corporately with Roman Catholics or with anyone else who has a faith plus works version, i.e. distortion of the gospel? Uh, What are the implications for us today? In what times, in what frames of reference does it make sense? Is it Christ honoring for us to make alliances with Roman Catholics or Orthodox or people from other professions of faith, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, you name it, we're focusing on Roman Catholicism because that's 
the Reformation series point, but but at what times and in what ways does it make sense for Christians, those who call on Christ alone, through faith alone, God's grace alone, on the authority of the scriptures alone, to God's glory alone, what does it look like, under what rubrics, under what rules or rationales should we avoid align ourselves with those folks, and in what time does it make sense for us to call them allies and try and work together? That's what we're looking at this morning. And before getting into these point by point, I hope you have a study sheet. We've said this before, and by the way, a lot of what I cover this morning has been said either in earlier messages I've done, Sunday school, etc., because we're still in that same Reformation theme. Um, We've said that Protestantism is, is not sort of a a solidarity thing. If you say somebody's a Protestant, you've got to qualify that. What does that mean? From what group in Protestantism do you come from? It doesn't say enough, right? So one Protestant could say they believe one thing absolutely at odds with what you would say you believe as a Protestant. But that same thing, guys, is true of Roman Catholics. So there's the official historic teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's upheld usually by the papacy, the magisterium, etc., the official organs of the Roman Catholic faith. So there's that historic setting. There's also individual clergy members, and they may hold more or less to the historic teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. They don't all sing the same song. You guys know recently, I think we talked about this in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, conservative elements within the Roman Catholic Church have called Pope Francis a heretic on seven different points because he's not upholding the historic teachings of the Roman Catholic faith. The Council of Trent and other things, other historic teachings on marriage, adultery, a number of things. So this is in flux a bit. And and this goes to say what we're talking about today is primarily what the Roman Church teaches officially and historically, you may say, I know Roman Catholics, and that's not what they believe, but that would be the point. There's just great diversity among Catholicism, as there is among Protestantism. You will meet two uh, well-thought um, conservative Roman Catholics who hold to historic teachings and live that out, walk that out. Uh, typical Roman Catholics, and most of you are aware, Kathy and I grew up as Roman Catholics, Uh, American Roman Catholics, by and large, I would say, are American Catholics. And what that means is, you know, we Americans, we're an independent lot, right? So the church says one thing and we do what we please. But we call ourselves Roman Catholics, and and I wouldn't want to underestimate or understress the degree to which, for most, not all, but for most Roman Catholics, being Roman Catholic is sort of a badge of honor and it's an identity issue, It's not just where I go to church. It's like being a Muslim or a Jew. I am a Roman Catholic. That's who and what I am. There's this sort of sense of person and place in that. And last, and I do save this for last because I think this is a small minority, you will occasionally meet Roman Catholics who believe that they've been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you kind of scratch your head when this happens. And these folks, in my estimation, are few and far between, and they are not in sync with the Roman Catholic Church. Their understanding of the gospel personally that they've embraced, salvation through faith and God's grace in Christ, is not what their church teaches. 
So they're, they're oddities. They're there, though. So we want to make sure that we say, the fact that someone is a Roman Catholic, we're not saying they can't be a Christian saved by God's grace through faith the same way as we are. But they're not, they're not the norm. They're the exception. So, so for some history, if you go back, so you got the Reformation. 1517 is Luther's Wittenberg Door Day, October 31st, coming up. That's why we've got this series 500 years ago. But Rome had a response to that, right? They had an official response. So from 1545 to 1563, the Roman Catholic Church convened the Council of Trent. And that was the official church response to the claims of Protestantism. So the reformers say, hey, the church has got these things wrong. And so the church convenes. And by the way, they called the reformers. They said, we want you guys here. You're invited. They didn't show up. Uh, One, they didn't have a vote. And two, can you imagine in that day when they burned heretics, would you want to show up at that party? Probably not. So they didn't show up. There was also some warfare that broke out that affected who did and did not make the Council of Trent. But this was the church's official response to the concepts, the, the truths, the scriptural truths that we've been reviewing for the last couple of months. So one, these are, on your, these are, by the way, just a few of the statements that come out of the Council of Trent. Uh, the church uh, affirmed that it was church tradition was equal to Scripture in its authority, and the magisterium was the official interpreter of Scripture. So, you know, we say uh, we believe in the, the sole authority of Scripture. It's unique. God has spoken in his word. But the Roman Catholic Church officially said Scripture has authority, Tradition has authority. The magisterium has authority. It's a three-legged stool. That was the official uh, conclusion of Trent. These are some statements, and I believe these are on your study sheet. This, this is wording, English wording, that comes straight out of the Council of Trent, among other things. If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ conferred in baptism, by the act of baptism, the guilt of original sin is remitted or asserts that the nature of sin is not taken away, let him be anathema, let him be accursed by God. This is a form of baptismal regeneration. This is not salvation by God's grace through faith. Remember we talked about this before. The Roman Catholic teaching is that baptism has a salvation element to it. That by the sacrament administered by the priest, you're saved apart from faith. A a child or an adult, the fact that you get baptized as a sacrament by the church means your sin is washed away and you're converted. Baptismal regeneration. Uh, Of course, this goes against everything the Reformers were saying and the Scripture affirms. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing but confidence, we could say trust, assurance, in divine mercy, let him be anathema. This is the very heart of of the gospel. If you say that you're saved by faith alone in Christ's work, you're cursed by God, said the Roman Catholic Church. Last of the few that I've picked out, if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received in baptism, to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out, that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged in this world or the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be 
anathema. You remember that we've said before, the Roman Catholic Church is great on the person of Christ and lousy on the work of Christ. So this says that even though eternally you may be okay with God, part of the punishment due your sin is still going to be exercised on you, if not in this life, then before you get to heaven in purgatory. You're still paying an element of your sin. Christ's sacrifice on the cross did not wipe that away. That was the official response from the Catholic Church 500 years ago. So initially when Rome responded to the God, remember this is the recovery of the gospel and of the authority of God's word, and it's God's grace, it's not our merit. And we don't do anything to get it, we, we receive it in the arms of faith. This was the response of the Roman Catholic Church. And by the way, the Council of Trent has never been rescinded. These declarations have never been pulled back. These are part of the historic teaching of the church. The church still today says that tradition is equal in authority to the scriptures, and that means officially these teachings from Trent still apply. Now, if you keep track of this at all, you know that Roman Catholic Church generally has been soft-pedaling what Trent affirmed for years now. So in the last several decades, uh, the Catholic Church has used uh, phrases like, uh, we are separated brethren. Uh, Protestant Christians are separated brethren. That goes absolutely contrary to what Trent said. But there's this language going on today, and there has been for at least several decades. So they're backing away from the historic declarations of the church. They're saying something softer, in some ways perhaps more helpful, but I'll read some things from R.C. Sproul again here that I think are helpful in giving additional clarity to this. Um, By the way, at the bottom of your study sheet, this book by Sproul, Are We Together?, and one by Greg Allison can't remember the title right now, but it's on the Roman Catholic Catechism that came out in the mid-90s. It's a bit more involved than Sproul's. They're excellent resources if you want to read up any more on this yourself. But in part, Sproul said this about Trent and, and since. He says, though the Council of Trent made many fine affirmations of traditional truths of the Christian faith, it declared justification by faith alone to be anathema, Ignoring many plain teachings of Scripture, such as Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. He continues and says, There's no question that the Roman Catholic Church has changed since the 16th century. And that goes to some of the difference in their dialogue that you'll hear today. He says, But the changes have not closed the gap between Roman Protestantism Indeed, the differences are greater now. For instance, the formally defined proclamation of the infallibility of the Pope. Remember, it was after Trent that the church said the Pope can speak ex cathedra, and when he speaks on these, he's speaking infallibly. And we talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks back. That was brought in since Trent. And all of the Mariology statements, uh, the veneration, they say it's not worship, but the veneration of Mary, that's all occurred since Trent, have come since the Reformation. Neither has Rome backed down from any of the positions it took in the 16th century debate. In the updated Catechism of the Catholic Church released in the mid-1990s, the treasury of merit, and this is remember, this is where they got the sale of indulgences. The church racks up brownie points with God and then sells them to people. 
the treasury of merit, purgatory, indulgences, justification through the sacraments, and other doctrines were reaffirmed. So even though there's some language today that's softer than the statements of Trent, the reality of the great divide that exists theologically, biblically, doctrinally between the Roman Catholic Church, Orthodox also, and Protestant generally is still very, very great indeed. So initially and still today, the differences between the teachings of Rome and anything that calls itself broadly Protestant is quite profound indeed. Now, there are attempts today, and there have been for a while, to form alliances between Roman Catholics and Evangelicals or Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals, Protestants, broadly. And we'll try and parse this helpfully. Um, This morning, I don't want you to go away hearing that we shouldn't uh, form alliances, as Abram did, with people who don't hold the same gospel we do in certain times and over certain causes. But it's what's at stake when we do. When can we and when should we not make these alliances? So recently, in 1994, Chuck Colson, an evangelical, and Roman Catholic Richard John Newhouse got together to form what came to be called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Now listen to some of the folks that signed on to this movement. So uh, leaders from the Nazarene Church, Southern Baptist, Assemblies of God, J.I. Packer, Oz Guinness, Pat Robertson, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ. These are not Protestant lightweights. These are lights. They signed evangelicals and Catholics together. Roman Catholics that signed, and this group would be less familiar with some of these names, but Avery Dulles, Peter Kreeft, or Kreeft, however you want to pronounce it, Michael Novak, Keith Fournier has been involved in legal issues with evangelicals for decades, and a number of priests, archbishops, and cardinals. So this had wide support both in Roman Catholicism and in Protestantism. And this is what the statement was about. And you can imagine in our day and time, there's a reason why Christians nominally, no matter what our definition of salvation is, want to get together with one voice because there's so much going on in the culture around us that's harmful, that's negative. And so we have common cause with these folks in a number of different ways. And so the the desire was, let's get together to speak with one magnified voice on these issues that confront us mutually today. We have common cause in these things. Uh, Morality and justice in law and policies. Religious liberty. As you know, that's winding down for Christians, especially in the States. The sanctity of life in all stages and parental freedom related to educating their children and other things. So it was about getting together and saying to the culture and to government broadly, hey, these things are important and we're speaking with one voice to say we need to address these appropriately. But the trouble was that the statement also affirmed that Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants all shared the same faith and mission, which is absolutely not true. It, it has not been true for 500 years. Because of that, men like John Ankerberg, D. James Kennedy, John MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul spoke in opposition to this effort. This, again, is from Sproul's book. 
He says, I think the biggest crisis over the purity of the gospel that I have experienced in my ministerial career was the initiative known as Evangelicals and Catholics Together. This initiative was driven by deep concern among some leading evangelicals and Roman Catholics over so-called common grace issues, such as family values, abortion, and relativism in the culture. Protestant and Roman Catholic leaders wanted to join hands to speak as Christians united against this growing tide of moral decay and relativism. Nesprol says, all that was fine. He says to this, we're good to go. We're on the same page. He says, I would march with anyone, Roman Catholics, Mormons, even Muslims. And by the way, you guys may know that occasionally in the news today, it makes a small headline that evangelicals are working in tandem with Muslims in a number of cities over the ability of Muslims to establish local mosques because the evangelicals understand that if Muslims are declined through ordinances, the ability to establish mosques, evangelical churches will soon follow. So evangelicals are currently working with Muslims around the country, not infrequently related to code issues on where you can put a house of worship. So he marched with anyone, including Muslims, for civil rights, for people, and unborn babies. But in the middle of the ECT document, the framers said, we affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Now, friends, if a Roman Catholic quotes that, you cannot accept that on face value. Have you ever talked to a Mormon? I want to be careful. I'm, I'm not impugning the motives of individuals because I don't know individual motives. But if a Mormon shows up at your door or a Jehovah Witness and they say, we believe in Jesus, we believe we're saved by Jesus, uh, by the gospel, by grace, through faith, if you accept that on face value, it just shows our ignorance. So then you have to qualify, what do you mean by that? This statement does not reflect Roman Catholic or Orthodox teaching, period. But they can say it, and they just leave all the details hanging. So if you don't know, you'll think, well, we are on the same page. But in fact, we are not. So he says, uh, in other words, ECT stated that evangelicals and Roman Catholics have a unity of the faith in the gospel. This statement went too far. If I march with a Muslim because we agree on certain human rights, that's one thing. It's another thing to say I have a unity of faith with the Muslim. That is not true at all. Neither is it true that I, as an evangelical, have a unity of faith with Roman Catholics. So Sproul's concern and my concern would be this. If we want to speak with one voice because we have common cause, we're, in, we're fine. We're good to go. But if in attempting to do that, we say we share the same faith, that's absolutely erroneous. We don't. We never have. There's been more recently another effort to get a singular voice together out of uh, uh, churches, Christianity broadly. This is from 2009. It was the Manhattan Declaration. That was spearheaded by Robert George, a Roman Catholic, Timothy George, a Baptist, and Chuck Colson, an evangelical. Now listen to the names of some of the folks that signed on to this one as well. So among the Protestants, Joel Bells of World Magazine, James Dobson focused on the family, Ligon Duncan and Timothy Keller, well-known Presbyterian 
uh, teachers and pastors. Tony Perkins, I think he's still on the radio every day. Joe Stoll, Chuck Swindoll, Ravi Zacharias, and Al Mohler. This is a this is a heavyweight list of Protestants and evangelicals. On the other side, archbishops and cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church, the primate of the Anglican Church in North America, bishops in the Orthodox face, all signed on to the same document. And by the way, I think it may be on your study sheet, uh, Lion and Lamb taught a series on this in 2010 from the issues that this document raised. The Manhattan Declaration, like evangelicals and Catholics together before it, was an attempt to, again, speak with one voice on certain key social issues. So it was addressing equal dignity of every human being as a creature fashioned in the image of God, possessing inherent rights of equal dignity in life. This is language from that declaration. Marriage is a conjugal union of man and woman ordained by God. Religious liberty. By the way, it was this document, this affirmation, that also said we see the day coming uh, for Christian civil disobedience because we see that legislation more and more is attempting to take away a Christian's right to practice their faith in the public arena. So these were the things that they were addressing. So Sproul to this document says something similar. He says this, the Manhattan Declaration says Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year tradition of proclaiming God's word. But who are the Christians it is speaking about? The document refers to Orthodox, Catholic, and Evangelical Christians. Furthermore, it calls Christians to unite in the gospel, the gospel of costly grace, and the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says it is our duty to proclaim this gospel, both in season and out of season. This document confuses the gospel and obscures the distinction between who is and is not a Christian. I do not believe that the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches are preaching the same gospel that evangelicals preach. And officially, we're not, and we never have. For these reasons, I, Sproul says, I could not sign the Manhattan Declaration, and neither could men such as John MacArthur, Michael Horton, and Alistair Begg. We're in agreement with 99% of what was in the Declaration, and we all strenuously support the sanctity of life, traditional marriage, and religious liberty, but we could not agree with the Declaration in its ecumenical assertion. And so that's where Sproul has drawn the line, and other men are drawing the line on these joint efforts, these alliances to publicly say the same thing. The question comes down to one of priorities, and I see it this way. When you have some evangelicals who are supporting something with their signature or verbally and others who are not, then, then one of two things must be occurring. We don't share the same priorities, could be, or we share the same priorities, but we don't support them in the same way. We have differences of opinion on what it looks like to share the same priorities. But with that, and this will be one of our next point, with that we want to say when we're considering alliances, Abraham allied with his neighbors for common cause, when we're considering an alliance, it seems to me that the primacy of the gospel needs to be clear from the front end. We can't confuse the gospel in making alliances with others who do not share the same gospel we do. So we want to be careful. I think that's the dividing line here that Sproul is making. So 
If we say on what criteria do we decide if we're free to make an alliance with others who profess a variation, a distortion of the gospel, it seems to me that the proclamation of the gospel is the place to make the line. That if we're unclear on that, we really shouldn't proceed. If we're trying to say we hold the same gospel and we don't, then that's a good place to stop. Or simply not to engage there, engage on the things you, in fact, hold in common. So from Matthew 28, 19 through 21, well-known passage, this is the mandate, if you will, that the church still operates under today. So you remember Jesus has died and risen from the dead. He meets with the disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and earth is mine. And with that authority, I commission you to go and make disciples in all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Trinity and teach them to observe all the things that I've taught you, I've instructed you. Make disciples. Guys, the whole process of discipleship starts with the gospel. If we're telling people to live good moral lives, and I think that's generally what Christianity by and large does, just like Judaism does, just like Islam does in some venues, just like many religions do, that's fine as far as it goes, but that's not the gospel. So if we tell people live good ethical moral lives, we're just adorning the dead before they die. We don't want to make wooden followers of religion. Our interest is real followers of Jesus because they've accepted the forgiveness God has provided them at his grace, his expense, through faith. Discipleship then means that transformation process that they're in with us growing more into the image of Christ. Otherwise, we're just spreading religion. If you know anything about the Roman Catholic Church, you know a billion plus Roman Catholics around the world. If you look at the way Roman Catholicism is practiced in the Philippines, in the Caribbean, in parts of South America, you know that there's not a dime's worth of difference between a Roman Catholic and a spiritist from the African continent. Santeria practiced in the Caribbean and South America. They're still crucifying themselves in the Philippines. These are all Roman Catholics. Now, the Roman Catholic hierarchy wouldn't say we support that, but I just make the point that this is, they do not get the gospel. They're religious, but they don't understand Jesus has paid it all, and we walk in the benefit of that. So the Great Commission should be the dividing line in my estimation. Uh, listen to this from Paul. This is from Galatians 1. The Roman Catholic Church officially teaches what Paul calls in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, a different gospel, another gospel, a distortion of the gospel, a gospel contrary to the one that he and the apostles preached. And Paul, before Trent, 1,500 years before Trent, Paul anathematized those who would proclaim a faith plus works gospel. That's exactly the language of Galatians 1. When he says, let them be accursed, it's anathema. It's the language of Trent. Trent borrowed the language of Paul, but flipped it on its head. The declarations that the Roman Catholic Church made at Trent fall under the anathema of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1. He says they are to be accursed. Now, if there's any ambiguity about Paul's gospel, he clarifies it in that same letter, Galatians 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by what they do, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. If we share the same gospel with another group, we can make an alliance and say we believe in the same God, the same faith, the same Lord. Thinking of Ephesians 4, we share all these things in common. We say so, and then we speak with one voice about whatever it is, the common good that we want to pursue. If we don't share that same gospel and same faith, it makes no sense to say we do. So if there's an alliance that's being formed for a common good that distorts the ability to clearly communicate the gospel, we should not be a part of that alliance. If that alliance does not distort the gospel, we're free to. And in most cases, along the lines we're talking about this morning, we should be part of those alliances to speak for the common good. That we are good neighbors to others. We are seeking what's in the best interest of those that live in this community or culture with us. There's a verse from Luke 9. I'll let you guys look up on your own later. Um, many in this group, I know, uh, good memory, maybe, uh, you've participated with Roman Catholics and people from lots of other walks of life at things like pro-life rallies and pro-life marches. Uh, we with our kids, and I'm sure some of you, when our girls were little, marched around a hospital in Topeka that used to conduct abortions. We've been at pro-life rallies. We've served this group has at the local um, crisis pregnancy center, crisis pregnancy outreach. The church supports locally and nationally pro-life groups. We are part of these kinds of efforts with Roman Catholics and with Orthodox, and, and we're glad to be so. And by the way, on these kind of agendas, no one has historically been more consistent or more vocal or more upfront in leading common cause than the Roman Catholics have been. Protestants are still catching up to Roman Catholics in things like the pro-life movement. They've led the way. Marriage and sexuality. Roman Catholics have been teaching on this for a long time. We should be also. Religious liberty, and this is going to become more and more an issue, I believe, here in the States. What does it look like to be free to practice religion in the public square? That's going to be hampered more and more, I'm sure. Elections and legislation. When someone's running for office who holds the views that life is important, what's more important? Uh, we should be able to, to get behind a candidates, whether they hold our view of the gospel or not, if they're committed to these things. Legislation that supports life. We can have common cause on all of these, and we should. That's all appropriate. We're being a good neighbor. We're helping those in our culture by doing so. We just don't want to confuse social action with the gospel. We don't want to say that we're on board as Roman Catholics and Protestants on the gospel when we're not. We have common cause. We can make alliance there. But we don't want to confuse the gospel in doing so. Uh, we talked about this when we talked about grace in a Sunday school a while ago, and I want to close on this note. I don't want this to sound entirely negative, and I, I don't feel that way, but I know it's sort of a negative message, right? So as we wind down, this is where I want to go. Um, you know the Apostle Paul, he had no earthly reason, in a sense, to love the Jews. He's a Jew, but once he's converted, what kind of treatment does he receive from the Jews? Not very good. You know, beatings, imprisonment, death threats, you name it. He, he didn't get very, very good treatment from the Jews. But what's his response to that? 
what you find is he has Christ's love for the people he'd grown up with, that ethnically, that by birth, he was related to them. He's not writing them off. You remember in a Sunday school lesson we said, Paul calls God's curse on those who are promoting a false gospel, a distortion of the gospel. That's not most Roman Catholics. Most Roman Catholics don't have a sense of the gospel at all. They're not promoted. They're not the ones Paul's speaking to. They are laboring under a distortion of the gospel. They're not the ones necessarily representing it. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jews that have been oppressing him, that don't share faith in Jesus at this point, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own. This is faith plus works gospel. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This group that is castigated and oppressed, Paul, Paul says, I love them and I'm praying for their salvation. I don't assume they've heard the gospel and rejected it. I want to stir them up to the gospel so some, that some will believe. Kathy and I were uh, in Colorado on an extensive break this summer, and there was a Sunday morning. We were going to go to a local service, and we went early to a restaurant, a breakfast buffet. A guy had highly recommended it and said how good it was, and so we got there. We thought early at 7.30 there was not a free table to be had. It was full. So we're getting ready to walk out, and there's an old gentleman at a table at a booth. He's sitting on one side. He told us, I'd be glad to share my booth with you. Great. Thank you. So Carl, we make friends with Carl. Carl's in his 80s, and we, you know, you're, you're, sharing, you're sharing your stories and talking back and forth. Carl buried his first wife after 52 years of marriage. Carl waited two or three years. He got married again. His second wife was sick for the eight years of their marriage. He cared for her and then buried her. Carl's as honest as the day is long. The, he lives in Grand Lake, but that's his second home. This was a guy who was a postal worker. This is a guy who has two houses. You know, he lives in Phoenix in the winter and Colorado in the summer. Just an outstanding guy. It's Sunday morning. We're getting ready to go to church, right? I say to Carl, Carl, where do you go to church? He says, well, I go to St. Anne's. Great. I know right where that's at. It's the Roman Catholic Church right down the street. I said, great. I said, Carl, as a Roman Catholic, what's your hope of going to heaven? This guy's in his 80s. He's lived an exemplary life. You'd love Carl. You'd love Carl to be your neighbor, your best friend. I say, Carl, as a Roman Catholic, what's your hope of heaven? Well, you know, I've, the way I've lived my life. Now, this is a devout Roman Catholic, guys. This is not... He has no clue. So we talk about the gospel. We talk about the scriptures. Talk about the gospel. Kathy and I uh, chatted with a young couple a year or so ago. Someone asked us to meet with a young couple. One was a Protestant. One was a Roman Catholic. And they're dating each other. And uh, long and the short of it, the Roman Catholic, they're really serious. You know, when I was a Roman Catholic as a teenager, not very serious, living life my own way. This Roman Catholic devout mass all the time, going to Roman Catholic conferences, asks me if I know a Roman Catholic priest by name, never heard of him, because he's a rock star, because he's at all the Roman Catholic young people's conferences. I'm like, wow. So we're sitting there in the living room, and, and this guy, he's intent, right? He's doing the do as a good Roman Catholic. I say, hey, 
Can I ask you a question? That's where this goes. Can I ask you a question? So you die, do you go to heaven, and why? And he says, this is a thoughtful Roman Catholic. He's going to the conferences. He's going to Mass. What does he say? He says, you know, that's a really good question. He says, I'm not sure how to answer that. I say, okay. okay. Well, then let's, let's talk about some texts here. I bring all this up at the end because we want to affirm that there is a great divide between Roman Catholicism and Orthodox and all other kinds of people that preach a faith plus works version, distortion, Paul calls it, of the gospel. There is a great divide that most of the time is not and should not be bridged. There are times when we can make alliances with people for common cause, and we should. But in doing so, we want to make sure that we're not muddying the clarity of the gospel. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. When we're thinking about sharing or interacting with our Roman Catholic or Orthodox friends, fellow students, family members, we don't assume that they've heard the gospel and rejected it. I assume they haven't heard the gospel clearly. I was a dummy, a Roman Catholic, that didn't know up from down when someone shared the gospel with me clearly, first time I'd ever heard it clearly, and came to faith. And God is saving Roman Catholics, and Roman Catholics need the gospel. So we don't want to say they believe the wrong gospel. We want to say, as Paul did for the Jews, they need Christ the same way we do. We don't look down our nose. We're not better than Roman Catholics. We all share the same sin nature. We all were condemned by God when Jesus died on the cross. That was his assessment of our religious stature, all of us. So we want to, be, we want to have a heart for folks who may think they have a relationship or a knowledge of God, like the Jews did, but it's not in accord with the righteousness God has provided in Christ. So 500 years after the Reformation, we're the heirs, the spiritual heirs of Melanchthon and Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, the divide still exists. We can make alliances and should for the good of the folks that we live with and among. But we need to be careful when doing so that the clarity of the proclamation of the gospel is not impinged. That doesn't suffer. Common cause, great. The gospel takes precedence. Father, thanks for bringing truth back to your people 500 years ago. Thanks for using the reformers to reclaim the authority of your word, for the, Father, the greatness of your grace, the ease of the procurement of salvation on our end through faith, the great debt payer in our Savior Jesus, and the fact that you're glorifying yourself in all of this. Would you give us a heart, Lord, one, to be sharing the gospel with those who think they may be in relationship with you and aren't? Would you help us to do so gently? Would you help us to ask them questions and simply ask them from your word what they make of the gospel? Lord, would you also give us wisdom to co-op, to make alliances where it honors you to do so and where it's the benefit for our friends and neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.